Well, we're going to continue our series this morning, uh, our identity series called Who Do You Think You Are? So let's prepare our hearts and our minds for a message from Kevin this morning. Well, my parents were very different people. My dad grew up in central Illinois. He was an extrovert. Um, He was part of a large extended family, uh, farm families. He was a math major in college. My mom, very different. She grew up, uh, she was an introvert. She grew up in Cincinnati, so very much a city girl. Her parents were divorced when she was quite young, and so she spent most of her time, just she and her mom, and she was an art major. So two very different people. But they had one thing that was a little unusual in common. They were both only children. And being, having two only children that marry each other can create uh, some challenges, and particularly when you start having children. And they had three boys within five years. And so my mom started to wonder at some point, what is wrong with these boys? And um, she didn't have siblings. My dad didn't have siblings. And there's a picture of us. When you look at us, you're going to go, I, how could she ever wonder that? Um, by the way, I was the one in the middle. Last time I showed a picture of my family, somebody said we, we couldn't identify you, but definitely already had the uh, a wave in the hair. But she, uh, and by the way, as far as I know, none of us have ever been arrested. Her uh, worst fears were never realized. But, you know, my parents were both only children, and there were times in their lives when they were very much alone. When they were growing up as kids, they had nobody to share the joy of growing up with, no siblings. And then as their parents got older, they kind of were alone in a different way. They were caring for aging parents and sick parents by themselves, and they had to walk through that journey alone. Now, you may not be an only child, but I think all of us have had that experience of feeling like we're alone. And in fact, some of you may be even experiencing that today. And this is the idea that we're going to talk about, we're going to look at as we continue in our series, uh, Who Do You Think You Are? And this series is all about our identity in Christ, who who he says we are. And there are many places in Scripture that speak to who God says we are, but I think one of the best places that we can go to is the book of Ephesians. And part of the reason that I think that is the book of Ephesians is six chapters. The entire first three chapters of the book is focused on our identity in Christ. And the second three chapters then are focused on how do we begin to live that out. And Part of the reason that Paul writes the letter that way is because he believes when we understand our identity, it impacts the way we live our lives. Or as we've been saying the last few weeks, our identity determines our activity. What we do tends to flow out of who we believe we are. And so we're going to dive into Ephesians chapter 2, grab a Bible, grab your Bible app, and if you're using one of our Bibles, it's on page 978. And as you turn there, I'm going to say welcome to those who are joining us online. We're glad that you're here with us as well. Well, our I am statement for today, as I, as I alluded to, is I am not alone. And this is a pretty broad statement, and it can mean a lot of things. And I think it means at least a couple of things. I think part of it could allude to what we talked about the week one, where uh, Rob said, you are chosen. 
You're a child of God. You're a son or a daughter of God, and God is with you. And we see this reflected in the very first part of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. It says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Now, that's great news, and, but it may be something that some of us struggle a little bit with, that God sees us as his son or daughter and that he delights in us. But it's true. But I think this statement, you are not alone, means more than that. And as we're going to see, you're not alone means you're a part of God's family. You've got spiritual brothers and sisters. You see, God doesn't have any spiritual only children. Now, as we set the stage last week, Nathaniel talked about how we're the voice of peace. And I think this passage in chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, um, it talks about how Jesus came into the world and he began to reconcile two groups of people to himself. He reconciled the Jews, uh, the people of God who had um, traditionally been the people of God, and those non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, and he reconciled them to each other, and then he reconciled them to God. And I love how Eugene Peterson says, uh, describes what happened and connects both what Nathaniel said last week and what the, we're going to talk about this week. He says this, Jesus demolishes the wall that separates insider and the outsider, lost men and women, aliens and strangers, and in its place, he builds a place of peace. As soon as the rubble is cleared away, a structure is built to welcome these once upon a time alienated, hostile men and women into a place of hospitality. And what Eugene Peterson ta is talking about is as the walls are broken down between people, between God, God is beginning to gather those people together into what we describe as the church. Now, the church, um, there's lots of ways to describe it. In fact, Paul uses four in this letter alone. Three we're going to look at today. There's actually a fourth metaphor that he's used a couple of places in this book. He talks about how uh, the church is Christ's body. But we're going to look at three. And I think there's a reason that there are so many different metaphors that describe what the church is like. Because I think the church is a little bit challenging to describe or paint a picture of. And while metaphors are limited, I think the church in particular can be challenging to describe. You see, the church is something that you can see. We walk in here and we see one another. We see this building. But the church is more than what you can see. Um, there's an invisible aspect to it. The church is local. It's planted here in Fishers in multiple locations. And yet the church is all around the world. The church exists at a point in time. And yet we're part of the church that existed throughout history and even this letter that Paul writes is it's a letter to a specific group of people in Ephesus. It's also a letter to us. And so Paul, as we're going to see, gives us different pictures to try to help us understand what is this thing that we're a part of. And so let's jump into Paul's words in chapter 2, verse 19, and see what he has to say. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners, your citizens, along with all of God's holy people, your members of God's family, 
And together we're his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. And through him, you Gentiles are also being made a part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So again, Paul gives us three images, three pictures of what the church is. And the first thing he says is you're citizens. And this is opposite of that term strangers and foreigners. Because you see, strangers and foreigners, when they moved to a city, would have been without very many rights. They didn't have a lot of protection, whereas citizens would have had full rights. Now, their view of citizenship was very different in the ancient world than ours is. It's, ours has been shaped more in the, the last few hundred years. But for instance, uh, in emerging Greek or in Greek culture where citizenship began, the idea first began to emerge. You know, last week Nathaniel talked about the city of Athens and citizenship there was, was um, somewhat restricted. You had to have two parents that were uh, freeborn Athenians, and if that was true of you, then you were a citizen. And in the Roman Empire, it was slightly less restrictive. If your father was a Roman citizen and it was, it was passed on to you, you could also acquire citizenship at great cost, and sometimes it was bestowed on people in really exceptional circumstances. But I think sometimes it's easy for us to almost take our citizenship for granted, but to them, it was a huge deal. It provided rights to them that they could have in no other way. Now, there were also responsibilities that came along with that. There was a shared identity and other symbols that helped them feel like they were connected. And I think the same is true for us as citizens of heaven. In fact, I think some of the times when we feel alone, it's because we are citizens of heaven and we look around in this world we recognize that this isn't the world that we made for. You see, we were citizens that were made for something else. And when we recognize the brokenness in this world, when we recognize the brokenness in ourselves or in our bodies, when we see the hatred and division, we begin to realize and remember that we are citizens of heaven, that heaven is our home country and heaven should be our primary place of allegiance. Now, for those of you who have moved here to the United States from overseas, you probably understand this in a way that most of us don't understand because you live in another place, but your heart may still be connected with where you grew up in a place that felt like home for a long time. But Paul wants us through this first uh, idea to remember that you're not alone, you're citizens of heaven. But then he goes on to another analogy, and he says, you're members of God's family. Now, when he says this, it's bigger than what we typically think of as family, as a parent, uh, or two parents, and a couple of kids. This phrase here actually, or this word here in the Greek means household. And in their culture, a household typically was people that were related by blood or circumstances that formed a closely knit group that would live kind of in the same, uh, the same space or the same community. It typically was multiple generations, at least three, and it includes servants or enslaved people that were considered part of that family or household. And so you can imagine these households or these families could be quite large. 
And while there, one author that I read this week said that there are 96 different metaphors for the church, which I had never heard that number, I haven't verified it, the family is by far the first and foremost metaphor that is used in the scriptures. And I think that God, the reason that God uses that metaphor is when God was beginning to create a people for himself, he first created a family. He found a man named Abraham, and he began to speak words of promise and calling to that man. And as Abraham was obedient and his family began to grow, he began to pass on those promises and began to teach his family about who God was. And through hundreds and hundreds of years, that one man, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, became a whole people, a nation, and they became the people of God. Now, we're an extension of that spiritual family as adopted children. In fact, as Paul says in another place in Galatians chapter 3, he says this, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the two true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. You see, God knows that family is the primary place we begin to learn about identity. It's the primary place that we begin to learn and understand the world. It's also the place that we're to be cared for and we're loved and accepted long before we can do anything productive. And this is true for God's family as well. And being in God's family is a part of your identity, but it's also something that he wants to use to shape your identity. So Paul wants us to know you're not alone. You're a part of the family of God. Now, Paul uses one final analogy here, and it's a little different. It's a building analogy, but it, and it's a metaphor that begins to change over a couple of verses. Uh, Paul says, you are his house. Now, as we begin to read this, it's not just an ordinary house. We begin to see that Paul is describing us, this house, is, as actually a temple, and like any house or any building, it's got a foundation. And he says that the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. And as people have read this and interpreted this, uh, the assumption is that it could mean that he's talking about the 12 original apostles that Jesus called, plus Paul, who was also commissioned by Jesus. And the prophets could be referring to New Testament teachers or Old Testament prophets. But more broadly, the sense is that those are who are responsible for preaching and teaching. And the, those apostles and prophets, their lives and their teaching created a foundation for us as the church. They gave us the scriptures. And their teaching provides guardrails for safety and truth. And I think there's something significant in here when Paul says we're being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. There's a sense of humility here that what we're building here in today's world is being built on what others have done and those that have gone before us. You know, yes, we're creating something new in this day and age, but we're building on the spiritual heritage of those that came before us. 
Now, a little fun fact here. When Paul was thinking about this idea of a foundation, he was probably thinking about the temple that he had seen and walked through. And the foundation stones of that temple were massive. They were larger than a car. In fact, the biggest one was over 570 tons. It was 12 feet long, or I'm sorry, 40 feet long by 12 feet high. In fact, when the Romans invaded the city of Jerusalem in AD 70, and they began to demolish the temple and knocking down the stones one at a time, they tried to move that really big stone, and they couldn't budge it. 570 tons. There's questions about how did they even get that stone there in the first place. But that stone brings to mind what Paul also says, which is part of the foundation. In fact, he says it's the cornerstone, which is Jesus himself. And the cornerstone of a building that's made out of stone or brick is placed on the corner, as as its name implies. And it brings the rest of the building into alignment, and the rest of the building starts to get built from that point. And if you remove the cornerstone, the building itself collapses. And so Jesus is the cornerstone for us as as this holy temple. But again, even though it's a building image, there's still a relational aspect that Paul is trying to get across to us because he says you and I are getting being built in the bricks and the stone of this beautiful temple that God is constructing that is his church. And as he he builds us together, and as we come together, we become an expression, we become a place of worship, and a place where his spirit dwells. And yes, his spirit dwells in us as we surrender our lives to him, but there's also, I believe, a unique sense of presence when we come together as his people And so Paul, again, wants us to know you're not alone. You're part of the temple of God. Now, I think in this day and age, in this modern world, um, we tend to think of, or it's easy to think of the church as something a little different. It's easy to think of it as as a successful business or organization. We live in a world where efficiency and getting things done is really, really important to us. So I think it's significant that Paul gives us images that are first and foremost about belonging, and they're less about efficiency and what we're accomplishing, and more about a sense of connection and something that God is doing. And I think Paul wants us to understand that you and I were not intended to do this life, particularly the spiritual life, on our own. He wants us to understand that God did not intend us to be spiritual-only children. Now, I think there's a temptation for all of us to be spiritual-only children. I know in my own life, when I'm by myself, um, I just have a sense of appreciation of how patient I am and how generous and kind I am. And then people show up and they wreck the whole thing. And suddenly I'm not as patient and kind and generous as I think I am. And we're all like that. But I think, I think this is a challenge, particularly for us as American Christians. In fact, I was really astounded. And Nathaniel sent me some stats this week as we were having a conversation about this message. 
There's a uh, 2022 Barna study that said this. It says 68% of Americans self-identify as Christian, but only 22% go to church occasionally or practice a religious discipline at home occasionally. Now, again, notice the words occasionally. The number drops even lower if you look at regular church attendance. I think as Americans, we struggle with this idea that we are part of a spiritual family and that God intended us to connect with one another. And so I want to look briefly at why is this so hard for us to engage in this idea of being part of the family of God. And I think there's three reasons. And I think the first is there are just some cultural reasons. Americans, as Americans, we are taught to be individuals. We're taught to solve problems by ourselves. And we're just taught to be incredibly independent. And if uh, any of you have lived overseas, I lived in Russia for a year, and it was fascinating to, uh, to learn that they think very differently. They, they're more Eastern. They have a more communal perspective. And they are actually tend to be more suspect of people who are too independent, that, too, that operate um, differently that, or operate outside the group. So as a nation, I mean, I think it's an incredible strength, but we're taught to be independent and operate on our our own. And I think this sense of isolation and aloneness, uh, we are paying an incredible price as a nation. In fact, I wasn't planning on diving into this, but I had two people email me stats this week. Uh, My wife sent me uh, some stats from a conference that she was at that said religious young adults um, report that they're emotionally and mentally flourishing compared to their non-religious counterparts. In fact, it said they were flourishing uh, twice as much as their non-religious counterparts. And then uh, Jama Davis, one of our elders, sent me some research that was a summary of some research by the Harvard School of Public Health. And it was fascinating looking at a bunch of the research from the past few years. And their summary was this, is that religious church attendance, or religious service attendance, didn't have to necessarily be a church, but religious service uh, service attendance was one of the most powerful predictors of health and well-being. In fact, they said it was more important predictor than being married, how many friends or relatives that you had, or how much time you spent with uh, a social group. In fact, this stat was really astounding. They said attending religious services at least weekly is associated with a 25 to 35% reduced mortality rate over 10 to 15 years. So maybe there's a marketing campaign in that, attend church, live longer, don't know. (laughs) But there are cultural reasons that I think we struggle to engage with church, but I think that's only part of the problem. I think the second reason are some family reasons. You see, all of us have been shaped by our family of origin, whether we like it or not. And most of us have received good things from our family, and there have been some challenging things that we've received. And for some of you, it was mostly bad. And because our family is where we learn how to operate in this world, some of those things I think we don't even fully recognize. They're just the way that we operate, the way that we do life. And I think often, as one pastor says, the church has often ignored the impact a person's had on their ability to follow Jesus in the present. 
And that can impact all sorts of things, but I think it impacts our, even our desire to be connected into church family. And so as disciples of Jesus, one of the things that we need to begin to do is identify and celebrate those good things that we received from our families. We also need to be able to identify and maybe figure out that there are some patterns that we need to release from our family of origin that aren't serving us well, that are inhibiting our spiritual growth and our ability to connect with other people. And then I think there's a third reason. And I think the third reason is really connected, honestly, with the church itself. Now, for most of you, when you showed up here at Grace Fishers, this wasn't your first church experience. And like our family of origin, our church past can inhibit or it can enhance our ability to engage with our present spiritual family. And you know, the church is often to blame for our ability or our struggle to connect with others as a part of our spiritual family. Because sadly, many people have been hurt by the church. And if that was you, whether it was a previous church or whether it was even Grace Fishers, I'm sorry. And those are words that I think don't get spoken enough. And again, even as hard as we try to be a healthy spiritual family, we are going to sometimes miss it. We aren't going to do it perfectly, but I think sometimes the church itself is responsible for the difficulties that people have connecting in community and connecting as a part of the church. So how do we begin to change this? And I've got two simple suggestions that are simple, but sometimes a little challenging to live out. The first is to take a step towards connecting with your spiritual family. I think like anything else, if you want to begin to change things, you have to just take a simple step. Now the good news is you've showed up here this morning and you're here. I think that's a step. And for some of you, that's a huge step, walking in the doors of a church, being part of a spiritual family just by walking in here is a huge step. But there are other ways that I think you can take a step, and maybe it's going to be, that step is going to be different for all of us. I would encourage you to join a small group, a smaller community, where people can, can begin to get to know you, where they can begin to uh, hear your story, where you can begin to learn to trust. But that may feel like an overwhelming step, depending on where you're at in your journey. You can also begin to look for a place to serve and just be around other people who are followers of Jesus. You could serve at Grace Fishers, as Josh said earlier today. There's lots of ways that we could, uh, lots of ways that we could connect you with a place to serve here. You can also serve with one of our ministry partners, like. You could serve with Hands of Hope and care for foster families, or you could serve at the Grace Care Center and serve uh, uh, friends in our community who find themselves in a place of need. You could also jump into a class. Nathaniel Summers, who preached last week, has got a class on spiritual maturity that is taking place on Monday nights at 6.30. It's a great way for you, again, to begin to take a step, just get to know some people, and then lastly was something that he encouraged us to do last week that I absolutely love, is maybe just connect with another person and begin to share your story. But simply first, if you want to change things, is you've got to take a step 
to connect with your church family or your spiritual family. And the second thing is just an encouragement to find healing from the past. The truth is, whatever you've encountered in your past will limit your ability to go forward until you take a step back and begin to find healing. Now, that healing, and depending on where that hurt, hurt, hurt has come from, you're going to... Um, that may look, that journey may look differently for each one of us. One of the things that I put in the Grace Fishers app is just some questions. Uh, the pastor that I quoted earlier, Peter Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, he's got some questions for reflection to help us look back at our families of origin and maybe begin to identify both some of those things that are good, some of those positive things, but maybe some of those things we need to begin um, to shift and change. So it might simply begin with some self-reflection or maybe processing with a friend as you begin to do some of that reflection. You could also connect with a member of our staff. Uh, our pastors are available for care appointments during the week. Or you may be at a place where you've discovered some things that you need to connect with a licensed counselor. And if you're not sure where to start, um, uh, Wendy Herberg, who's one of our pastors, maintains a vetted list of Christian counselors that we would recommend. You see, friends, it's important that we take a step to engage with our church family because we aren't intended to be spiritual-only children. And what God has called us to do and to be in this world is too important not to engage in because there are people all around us that are living life alone, and they need to experience hope. And what they need to see is they need to see people who identify first and foremost as citizens of heaven and who are living in such a way that they're growing and a part of a spiritual family that reflects who God is and his purposes in this world. And friends, as we do that more and more, we're going to increasingly become a place of worship and a place where God's spirit dwells and people are able to see that. I just want to take a moment to pray for us as we begin to transition in our service. Father God, we just thank you for the opportunity to be a part of this church family. And um, Father, it's been a fun adventure over the last two years as you, got, as you have launched us out in our own and we've begun this adventure together in this new season of who you've called us to be. And Father, I pray for those that struggle to connect here or showing up on a Sunday morning or plugging into a small group is a difficult thing. I pray that you would meet them wherever they are. I pray that you would begin to show them your love and your faithfulness. And I pray that they would understand in a fresh way that they, they are your son or your daughter. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, in just a few moments, we're going to transition into a time of communion together. So hopefully you've got the elements. And communion is a reminder of Jesus' death and resurrection, the very thing that we talk about that allows us to be the spiritual family together. And that bread and that cup or reminder of Jesus body and his blood which is broken and shed for us 
And so we want to give you a few minutes together to reflect, and then in a, in a little bit, I'm going to come back up, and I'm going to invite us to receive uh, the body and the blood together, and then we are going to celebrate those I am statements together. Would you stand? Would you stand with me? It's interesting that when Jesus broke the bread and passed the cup among his disciples, it was a family meal. One of the most important things that families do together. And so Jesus broke the bread and he passed it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. And do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus passed the cup. And he said, this cup represents my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for many. And he told them to drink and remember that covenant between God and his people. And while we're standing, we're going to celebrate these identity statements together. And so, God desires to know me. In Jesus, I can live a joyful and fulfilled life. Hostility may be all around me, but through Jesus Christ, I am adopted into the family of God.